baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Buses carrying migrants from Texas have been arriving at the Port Authority for months. Since May, the city indicates more than 11,000 people have come seeking asylum. Most are from Central and South America, like this woman who spoke through a translator. You know, she's come here for a change, for a better life, for more opportunities. And, you know, even though it's so difficult, she's come for um, a better opportunity. The city and nonprofits have been struggling to keep up with the demand for shelter and services. We are tremendously concerned about the strain and the resources, and that's why we need the country as a whole to step up so that there can be a more orderly way that we deal with that given the tremendous surge and need that we're experiencing. The challenges are not just in New York, and they're not easily resolved. So this is a toxic mix of economic and political circumstances that is driving this large scale of flows of the southwest border. The issue has been controversial for hundreds of years. Whenever the um, some chunk of the American population looks around and looks at uh, new immigrants and decides that they are so radically different than, quote, real Americans, they get up in arms. This week on 880 In-Depth, immigration, how it's being handled in New York, why we're still fighting about it, and an historic view of where we've come from. Welcome to 880 In-Depth, I'm Michael Wallace. Through the generations, people seen as the other have been criticized and marginalized. Whether it was the Irish, the Italians, the Asians, or now those from Latin America, there's been resistance. A little later, we'll hear from an expert with an idea on how to improve the current system. Right now, asylum claims are handled by judges, and the court system is completely packed. That what we should do is that asylum seekers at the border, which is where the crisis is, should have their claims done by an asylum officer, not a judge. And an immigration historian who responds to a common claim that immigrants take jobs from Americans. They take jobs Americans won't do or can't do and, you know, uh, uh, go to any facility taking care of the elderly, taking care of uh, small children, uh, hospitals, uh, cafe, restaurants, uh, uh, where dishes are getting cleaned, washed and cleaned up. But we'll start with what's happening in New York. The city has a right to shelter law, which requires every homeless person to have a bed. With the flood of migrants, that system's being strained. Catholic Charities is one of a number of social service agencies trying to help these newcomers get settled. The director is Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. He spoke to our Peter Haskell. I mean, one of the things we are doing in Catholic Charities is we are kind of interviewing and welcoming the people who come. And basically, the initial thing that we do is just to kind of assure them that we want to understand their situation, we want them to feel more secure, 
And we want them to feel that we are welcoming them, treating them with dignity and respect. And, you know, that may sound a little bit soft, but when you have people who are showing up, you know, who have only been in the United States for a week or so because they've traveled thousands of miles by foot, by truck, by bus from um, Venezuela to the United States. You know, that is a very, very important, you know, first thing that you do. You say, okay, let's try to figure this out. We know it's been a difficult journey. We know it's problematic. Let's now understand what you need. And so it may seem soft, but it's critically important. Then going beyond that, we really try to understand what their needs are, what their situation is. Do they have school-age kids? If so, let's make sure that the Board of Education um, receives them and, and gets them enrolled in school. You know, if they have health care issues, let's make sure they're um, attached to the health care system so they get help there. Shelter, New York City is, is responsible for providing that shelter. So they need to participate in kind of the city's intake. Now, in addition to that, what we also do, almost all of these people have documents from immigration. So let's understand where they are in the immigration system. Do they have a court appearance? Do they have to check in with immigration? to make sure they comply with those requirements. The other thing is that um, we know that what they're telling us is that they want jobs. So, you know, that's an important factor, important thing that people, you know, people, people want. Peter, that's got a broad overview and, you know, please ask me any further questions. Sure, so two things about shelter and jobs, obviously, this is an expensive area to live, but the flip side is there's a need for people to work. So tell me about that that mix and match, or is there a mismatch? Where do people find places to live, and are they finding jobs? Okay, so let me divide that into two parts. Um, New York City is a city in which there is a right to shelter, and our experience with the city administration is that they have not shirked from that responsibility. They have responded by uh, welcoming newcomers. Uh, they've responded by opening up additional places where people can, can get shelter. Um, they are trying to expand that capacity. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes things fall between the cracks with such an upsurge. I'm not saying that there haven't been times when things have fallen between the cracks, but New York City has stepped up to the plate in trying to provide immediate shelter for those who are coming. So that's the first kind of piece which is critically, critically important. The second piece of jobs is that those who are here are in a difficult situation. They want to work. And we have been, as part of our kind of saying, what can government do to facilitate this? So we've been talking with people at the federal government about allowing these individuals 
the opportunity to provide for a work authorization uh, permit. And that will be critically, critically important for uh, the individuals to kind of move forward in the United States. I mean, immigrants who come to New York and other parts of the United States, they want to work. So part of what we are saying to the federal government is, hey, you know, there is a way that you have treated those from the Ukraine, people from Afghanistan. Uh, now let's do that same thing with people coming from primarily Venezuela to give them the opportunity to apply for work authorization because they want jobs and we have a need for those jobs uh, in the United States and we know we have a need for them in New York. I just want to finish up by going back to almost the beginning. We talked about the strain on the system. Are you concerned that at some point either Catholic Charities or New York City just cannot handle the volume of people coming in? Peter, I am very concerned about that, and that is why we have been saying for a while, this is not New York City's problem. This is not Texas's problem. This is the problem of the United States. And so in order to deal with the upsurge, we need the participation of the federal government with its capacity to manage and to more orderly deal with this. And yes, we are tremendously concerned about the strain and the resources. And that's why we need the country as a whole to step up so that there can be a more orderly way that we deal with that given the tre tremendous surge and need that we're experiencing. Why do you think the federal government hasn't stepped up? Well, Again, I think, um, you know, I think this is a relatively recent crisis. Um, we are coming out of the pandemic, and I think it's now time for the federal government to step up in some of these, some of these areas. But Congress has been gridlocked on this issue for decades. The widening political divide has put real immigration reform out of reach. Our next guest is well-versed on the intricacies of the subject. Sure, it's Muzaffar Chishti. I'm a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute. What is the Migration Policy Institute? Migration Policy Institute is a nonpartisan think tank uh, headquartered in Washington, D.C. We pay attention to worldwide issues of migration. We have an office in Brussels which follows trends in Europe and we have a presence in Central America and Mexico to follow the developments in that part of the world. He spoke to Peter Haskell about the intransigence. If the border crisis was the big story of this year, the parallel story is the complete paralysis in the Congress to deal with it. And, you know, Congress has been has has known that we have an immigration dysfunction for the last 20 years at least. And there have been attempts, some of them bipartisan in 2006, 2007, even 2013, when uh, Republicans like 
Senator McCain would pair with Democrats like Senator Kennedy to look at bipartisanship. Bills were passed in one house and not the other. And that has been the, the pattern, is at the end of the day, it becomes uh, the polarized politics intervenes in a successful action on immigration. That it's now, we have now reached such a stage where for a Republican lawmaker, if you're seen soft on immigration, all that it uh, means is you're going to get a fight in the primary. On the other hand, if you're a Democrat, you're not seen as sufficiently supporting of immigrants, you're going to get a fight in the primary. So it's become kind of very retail politics issue in terms of polarization. And Congress had the ability even to do small bore efforts like working on dreamers, which are these kids who came into the U.S. when they were very young and, no, and by now have reached college age, and they're unauthorized. And there's a lot of sympathy for them, even among Republicans. But Congress could not act. Same is true about farm workers. We do know that we need more farm workers. And there have been bills introduced to help farm workers. A lot of support, even bipartisan, doesn't get done because the politics just weighs down everything. And to tie it with your earlier question about the border, part of the reason, at least stated reason, is that, look, as long as we have this crisis at the border, we can't deal with anything. So the border crisis is real, but it also has become an excuse in many cases for members of Congress not to act on immigration. That's true for Republicans, and that's true for some of the moderate Democrats as well. How does this play out? Do we just keep uh, having this kind of back and forth, Democrats, Republicans, border states, non-border states? Is there any kind of coherent policy that is likely? How do you see this playing out? Well, one of the uh, the new kind of um, uh, some possibility of, uh, of a pathway here is that a lot of this pressure is at the border. And these are people coming to seek asylum. Whether many of them are eligible for asylum or not, we don't know. Most of them finally do not uh, get their asylum claims. But it takes years in our present system to complete an asylum claim. And that delay in courts actually becomes a magnet for illegal crossings or illegal arrivals because people say, look, if I can make it to the border, even if I don't win my asylum claim, I'll be here for the next seven years. And smugglers use that uh, that fact to the hilt to to prevail upon people to come to the border. There is the, the Biden administration issued a new rule on asylum, which we think is going to be potentially a game changer. Is that right now asylum claims are handled by judges, and the court system is completely packed that what we should do is that asylum seekers at the border, which is where the crisis is, should have their claims done by an asylum officer, not a judge. Trained in country conditions, non-adversarial settings, which can happen much more quickly. And therefore, that will remove the pressure from the courts, and they will still get a quick review in the immigration courts because we must still maintain judicial review as part of our constitutional due process but it should take much less than the current system takes. 
potentially finish the whole hearing, including the appeals, within a year. And then people who get their asylum should be integrated quickly, and people who don't get should be removed. And unless we see some removals, the message is not going to get down into Central America and South America that, look, if you just come to the border, you're going to get a you're going to be able to stay in the United States for many years. We think that that fundamental change in the way we deal with asylum processing is the right message to send, and it's also the best way to handle asylum seekers who actually deserve our protection. Former President Trump put the border in the spotlight, cracking down on immigration. President Biden has made changes to reverse course, but the conflict predates both of them. The area has been a flashpoint for a long time. Chishti talks about what's driving this migration. Well, the situation the southern border is pretty close to unprecedented. Uh, we haven't had this level of arrivals at the border in a very long time. It's certainly pretty close to since the early 90s, and which is, it may be reaching very close to the high watermark. And it is driven by a set of complicated factors, both political and economic. Uh, significant political turmoil in places like Cuba and Venezuela and Haiti, and then economic uh, downturn precipitated also by the COVID in almost all poor economies of Latin America, including Cuba and, uh, and Haiti. And so this is a toxic mix of economic and political circumstances that is driving this large scale of flows of the Southwest border. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. We've heard the term border crisis in the past. Is there a crisis now? And if not, are we facing a potential crisis? Well, you know, the definition of crisis is always relative. It is, in terms of numbers, it is a very high number. Uh, I think the optics of it are less vivid because I think, frankly, the press has not been paying attention uh, to it, and uh, uh, and that matters. So, but even if it's not the reality, the perception is that the border is in a state of of crisis, and uh, there are also policies that the Bush administration, I'm sorry, the Biden administration, has tried to put in place, uh, which have been um, challenged in court uh, by, you know, mostly by Republican states. So there is this new, almost a civil war going on between the federal government and the states uh, to gain primacy on immigration policy. So that tension is not helping the ability to manage the border. What what is if you can explain what the Biden administration is trying to do and how that might impact the situation there? 
So the Biden administration has tried to do uh, two or three things different from the Trump administration. One is that uh, in the middle of the in the towards the end of the in the middle of the pandemic, towards the end of the Trump administration, that administration put in place uh, something called Title 42. It's a very strange misnomer to describe a health regulation. It's a 1940s regulation under which U.S. has the right to expel anyone on health grounds. And so the administration, Trump administration invoked that to expel any migrant who would show up at the border. So Biden administration inherited under that policy. We don't process anyone at the border under that title. We just expel them. And what that led to is that people making repeat attempts at entry. Since no record is kept, no processing is done for your first uh, attempt, people keep on making multiple attempts. So that has changed the nature of the challenges, the nature of the flaws at the border. And the uh, many red uh, uh, Republican states challenged the end of Title 42. They thought this was a politically motivated uh, move by the Biden administration uh, to keep flows coming in. And so, and so that's sort of in a holding pattern now. You talked about the tension between the federal government and the states. You've got the, the governor of Texas busing migrants to New York City. What do you think of that? Exactly. I mean, you know, till 1996, the general consensus in our country since the Reconstruction was that states have no role to play in immigration. This is federal policy akin to foreign policy. We don't allow states and localities to have their own foreign policy. But, you know, in the last 20 years or so, as immigration has become a much more polarized issue in our country, states have become very assertive in their role in immigration. So what's now happening is that when there is a Democratic uh, president, Republican states bring lawsuits to thwart any actions by that administration. Similarly, when there is a Republican administration, Democratic states bring lawsuits to thwart the action of the uh, of, of the Republican administration. So this is the new fight in federalism over the immigration space. Now, Texas is most activist among states on this. This is predates uh, Biden, this predates Trump, this even goes, I think, as far back as, you know, certainly in the early parts of the, of the Obama administration. In many ways, you could say that Texas is sort of the, you know, government in exile. For uh, for the uh, for the old Trump administration, and every uh, step that the Biden administration takes, whether it's on the border, whether it's on enforcement priorities inside the country, Texas challenges it. So this year they decided that since they were getting a record number of migrants at the border, and since Texas and Arizona are two of our principal border states. Uh, Governor Abbott decides that he wants to teach these blues states a lesson. That look, I'm going to give you a taste of what I'm dealing with here, and I'm going to bus people to New York and Washington, and now to to Chicago. What we hear to see what we are dealing with. 
Now let's take a look from the long view. Hasia Diner is a professor at NYU and co-author of the recent book, Immigration and American History. She says anti-immigration feelings and prejudices are as old as the country itself. Immigration has always been controversial, and it may seem uh, more so now, only because we're living through it, and we have so much media saturation. Uh, although I think uh, the uh, um, level of uh, um, uh, ugly talk uh, has, has escalated, but if we go back and look at the uh, anti-Irish rhetoric of the uh, uh, decades before the Civil War, the rise of the Know Nothing Party, which is an explicitly anti-Catholic, anti-Irish political party, which uh, really did extremely well, uh, you know, in running uh, people from for office, um, you know, in, in in that historic context, it's actually not so. Uh, radically, uh, what we're experiencing is not so radically new. It's just that we're living through it. Is, is there typically an ebb and flow to to support and resistance to immigration? And if so, is that typically based on the economy or politics or both? So while there is a kind of ebb and flow, it's never gone. Uh, it's just that in some eras, it's uh, some decades, it's just more prominent uh, in as much as there are both uh, economic uh, and political uh, reasons that are uh, sort of pushing uh, the uh, anti-immigration forces to greater prominence. Also, I'd say whenever the um, some chunk of the American population looks around and looks at uh, new immigrants and decides that they are so radically different than, quote, real Americans, they get up in arms. And so for, in the case of the Irish, the Irish arrival in the millions in the um, uh, decades before uh, the Civil War and after, these are the first real Catholics, you know, the first real Catholic population to come to America, a nation of people who uh, embrace their Protestantism as uh, kind of key to what this country was. And um, in the latter part of the 19th century, starting the 1880s and 1890s, you know, it was all these people from Italy, Greece, Eastern Europe, both Jews and uh, Catholics, um, and they seemed so incredibly alien. In a way, the the when we think about the white nationalists now, they are essentially saying all these new immigrants. You know, coming from um, the, you know, Latin America, Central America, from uh, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, they're not, they can, they are just too different to be incorporated into the American uh, public. In terms of former President Trump, how, how did he? How did he? I don't know if I want to say exploit this, but how did he change? the conversation about this. Yes, so I'm um, of the view that he didn't so much as ch change it as uh, embolden uh, those uh, uh, people who had always been around in one form or another, um, had been around for a long time, but he emboldened them to uh, uh, come out and to um, say in uh, very public ways 
um, the uh, that which uh, others had been thinking um, and saying essentially behind closed doors. Um, he didn't create this, and I, it's possible that this kind of ugliness would have uh, been uh, would have emerged without him. But he gave it a legitimacy, you know. And as the uh, phrase goes, you know, he got the bully pulpit. Um, but this was a bully pulpit um, to make those claims that, uh, as he said, you know, people were coming from the whole countries and they were bad hombres and they were uh, rapists. And uh, uh, and this, to have this come from um, the embodiment of the nation, the president uh, gave a tremendous uh, uh, ability to uh, the others to say this now publicly and uh, we know that some of them have been elected to Congress and um, they represent uh, uh, swaths of the American public that have thought this for a long time but it's that emboldenment that emboldenment that, that emboldenment uh, that uh, I think it's really notable. As that line of thinking goes, immigrants are a drain on the American system. They benefit from government services without contributing anything. But Diner says history shows that's not the case. Well, I think the truth lies so much with those uh, people, almost without question, who say immigrants uh, benefit the nation. Uh, so for one thing, immigrants don't take jobs away from Americans. Um, they take jobs Americans won't do or can't do and, you know, uh, uh, go to any facility taking care of the elderly, taking care of uh, small children, uh, hospitals, uh, cafe, restaurants, uh, uh, where dishes are getting cleaned, washed and cleaned up. Uh, that's who's doing this work, and we all depend upon it. And so every time, you know, we look for someone to clean our homes or we look for... Uh, somebody to take care of our uh, disabled or elderly uh, uh, loved ones. It's an immigrant who's going to do that. Uh, and, um, you know, in addition, um, the uh, 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 immigrants receive very little in the way of aid, okay? They, uh, but on the other hand, they pay taxes, okay? And they pay taxes those who are here in uh, documented pay taxes like anybody else and um the, even those who are undocumented are frankly still paying sales taxes every time you know they uh bu buy something in the store um and uh so they are uh, adding to the wealth of the nation uh rather than taking anything uh, from it and uh again the the there are so few services that they that the state expands upon them, that the idea that they're coming to get American um, services is just statistically uh, absurd. Is there a point where there are too many people coming into this country, into this city, where it poses a problem? Well, the uh, part of that answer, part of part of your question, implies that um, immigrants um, kind of blindly uh, stagger into some place uh, without any idea of what, what awaits them. And we know in historically and in the present, they come in response to the possibility of uh, making a living. And uh, they know a tremendous amount about where there's work, what kind of work, 
Uh, they uh, have pretty good idea who's going to help them find it, and um, they, uh, uh, in times of uh, tremendous economic of economic distress, they don't come. And during the uh, after 2008, there was actually a period where substantial numbers of uh, Mexicans went back. And there was a uh, as much a net loss as a uh, as a gain uh, individual. So. Uh, the too much is um, funny. It's, it, there's no standard by what's too much. Uh, but secondly, uh, the uh, flow of people is uh, determined. Uh, they determine that flow based on where there are jobs that they can get, okay, where there's work they can get, and uh, these are the jobs that are desperately needed and. Uh, that uh, uh, Americans won't do. Uh, just a few years ago, there was actually an article um, uh, about uh, some a farmer, I believe, in North Carolina, who uh, wanted to uh, free himself of immigrant labor. Uh, so he uh, advertised in the local uh, newspapers and in other local um, outlets um, that he was hiring for field work uh, people to and pick crop, you know, to plant, to pick crops, uh, and paying, uh, you know, reasonable-ish wages. And um, some local white people, uh, men, came to do, came. Most of them lasted not even a day. They didn't do that kind of work because Americans don't do that. And uh, the farmer was once again uh, in search of uh, laborers from the Caribbean, from uh uh, Central America, who are going to go and stand out in the fields and pick crops. So, I mean, that seems to me quite an argument in favor of the need for immigrants. You know, we want to have uh, those blueberries on our uh, in our uh, bowls of cereal in the morning. Well, somebody has to pick them, okay? And um, unless we're going to buy everything from uh, Chile, um, the people who are going to pick them are not Americans, are not uh American citizens, but they're uh, people, uh, immigrants, uh, many of whom are, are willing to brook all sorts of uh, risks uh, to get here to go out and pick the blueberries that are going to be in, uh, in my cereal bowl. Let's get a final thought from Timothy Cardinal Dolan. He notes those who are traveling, sometimes by foot for thousands of miles, are in search of a better life. And he asks for some humanity. These are people with names and with dads and moms. That's it for this edition of 880 In-Depth. Our executive producers are Tim Scheld and Peter Haskell. Each week we dive into an issue of importance to our community. I'm Michael Wallace. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.